and you probably know the famous Easter Island stones yeah. and they, they built them up to the point where the larger they were, the more dominant your tribe was. Well, to move these large stones around, they, need, they got so big, they needed to start using wooden logs. So they had to chop down trees, turn them into logs, and that would help roll the stones and then lift them up eventually so they could stand tall. Well, what happened was the other tribes caught onto this. And so it was a competition of who could build the tallest stones. And they ended up deforesting the land. Wow. And what happens when you deforest the land? The animals die. What happens when the animals die? The food supply decreases. And what wow. happens when the food supply decreases? The humans started eating each other. So cannibalism is what occurred and ended up killing everyone on the entire island except like a hundred people of one tribe. Welcome to the Phil with Forbes 30 podcast. This is Phil Michaels, Forbes 30 under 30 entrepreneur and performance coach. Every year, Forbes names the top 30 entrepreneurs, leaders, and stars in the world. And each week, I bring you one of them to help you level up in your life and business. From celebrities like LeBron James to Kylie Jenner and Cardi B, to entrepreneurs with companies like DoorDash, Instagram, and YouTube, you're sure to learn from the list. Thanks for spending time with me today. Now it's time to level up. Level up. Welcome to Phil with Forbes 30 podcast. Today we have a very special guest. He made the Forbes USA list in 2020 this year for the venture capital category. He's an MBA from UPenn and early stage investor at Floodgate Venture Capital Firm. He was previously the managing partner of the Dorm Room Fund that was famously focused on student run startups where he made more than 20 pre-seed investments in startups built by student founders. Before venture capital, he managed the famous Square payment device that you, I know you've heard of. Please welcome my very special guest, Sean Shu. Phil, thank you so much for having me. And uh, some of those numbers might be outdated at this, po at this point, but uh, <laughs> uh, you know, Square definitely has uh, seen a pretty fun ride over the last couple of months given COVID, but uh, I'm really happy to be here and, uh, and thanks for having me. Very excited to have you here. It's my pleasure. Welcome to the show and welcome to the Forbes Club. Yeah, appreciate it. It's been an amazing community so far. So many people who are hustling on building great companies or investors that, uh, that admire. It's a little bit of a, uh, uh, it's, ama it's an amazing to be in the room with everybody. It really personally. is. And, you know, thinking about making a list, where were you when you first found out you made the list? Um, well, uh, I think it was announced, uh, on East coast time. So I think it was like five or six in the morning where phones <laughs> blowing up. I was just in my apartment in San Francisco. And I was like, why is my phone blowing up? Did, did something terrible happen? And then, uh, I, I realized that people were texting me congratulations saying that I had made the list and it was a pretty, it was a pretty good feeling. Um, uh, and, uh, spent the next couple of hours just texting a couple friends back, but it was a, it's a cool moment. Who was the first, first person you shared it with? Uh, it was my uh, um, uh, girlfriend at the time, actually, and uh, she. she uh, uh, it was a. It was a good. Yeah, it was proud, a proud it was a moment. Really great uh, moment. Yeah. So before we dive into things of what you're doing now, take us back to the very beginning, where you're from, where you grew up, and the path that led you to where you are now, ultimately making it to the Forbes list. Sure. So um, I grew up in Silicon Valley. Uh, I suppose I've been immersed in startups and venture capital my entire. Um, life. Uh, and, uh, you know, 
immigrant to this country, kind of really focused on trying to build this American dream uh, uh, with my parents. Uh, very lucky and fortunate to have to have uh, to have done that. Um, uh, you know, when I ultimately uh, when my family ultimately first came here, we had like a thousand dollars in our pockets. We we're working. My dad was working. You know, uh, late jobs and going to grad school at night, and uh, uh, it was really cool to watch my parents. Um, live that immigrant, uh, live through that immigrant experience and me as well. Um, ultimately in my career, I uh, was really focused and fast passionate about helping companies go international. So um, uh, thank you for that awesome, awesome bio. But uh, I, I cared about helping American technology companies go into markets in Asia, markets in Europe, markets in Latin America. Um, and so for me, uh, that's, that's how I landed at, uh, uh, at Bungle and Square and, and managing those the, the, the work there to go to the, those frontier markets. Um, uh, I was also on the founding team of a YC startup, like you mentioned, and that was very formative in helping me think about how, the, how to do zero to one, um, what good looks like, um, how to think about uh, building something that people actually love and want or, and desperate to buy. Um, uh, somewhere along the way, I was really, uh, I wanted to pause and spend some time thinking about geopolitics and international affairs um, and globalization. Uh, a lot of stuff was happening in 2016 at the time. Uh, you know, uh, President Trump was elected and, and, and saying a couple things that uh, I, just, I didn't necessarily agree with with, rela with, with regard to international institutions. Um, you know, Brexit happened while uh, we were trying to pull off a great expansion into Square, for Square into Europe. And that I think um, was, uh, was eye-opening. And uh, I'd also spent some time uh, uh, in North Korea, um, which is a whole separate story, I think. Uh, but uh, suddenly they're starting to say that we're gonna, they're gonna um, uh, build nuclear missiles to, to, to bomb the United States. And all these things were happening in a way where I felt like it was important for me to spend two years and take a seat from, back seat from, from entrepreneurship and startups and uh, really critically think about uh, how it all fits together. And so that's what brought me to, to, to Penn where I was in the Lauder Institute and the Wharton program, got my MBA there and a master's in international affairs um, uh, and fell in love with investing. Uh, and, uh, and now I'm an investor. So that's, that's the full story. That was a bit of a rant, but. Uh, so when you were at Square, what, that was what brought you over to North Korea. How did you end up in North Korea? Yeah, it was not Square. It was actually at Vungol. Um, uh, one of the execs there um, uh, had participated in a program before and uh, uh, suggested I'd look to uh, check into it, referred me to the, to, the, to the folks that run this program, this nonprofit called Chosan Exchange that's based out of Singapore. And they take delegations of, uh, of technologists, entrepreneurs, um, executives in general, and they take them to, uh, to, to North Korea to mentor entrepreneurs. Um, at the time, I think there were quite a few experiments in, in private sector entrepreneurship, although they wouldn't, they wouldn't say exactly that those words, private sector or capitalism or entrepreneurship, but there were people starting the first, you know, cafes and breweries and uh, restaurants and uh, uh, grocery stores in the country. And I thought, I thought it was really important to, to see it uh, for myself, um, uh, understand it. Fascinating experience. Um, uh, but it, it, it definitely, uh, you know, I went with a delegation of other technologists and Silicon Valley folks. And, you know, one of the people that I met there, um, you know, took me to, to the side and said, we will not advance as a country until we have open, free access to the internet. You would never expect a person in North Korea to say that. Uh, I certainly didn't. 
Um, but they know what's out there and they know what the path is to, to, to kind of sustainable development for their country looks like. Um, some that they say openly, some perhaps not, but, you know, fascinating experience and really solidified my point of view on how do we think about global ecosystems. What, what was the most surprising or interesting thing that you learned while you were there? Because it sounds like you had such a unique, rare opportunity to see North Koreans firsthand. I mean, we only get to see what is shown in the media. And obviously, there's some leaks and from you know, some of the Asian news portals. But what, what did you learn? Um, the, the, you, we can spend a whole podcast on this, I guess. But it is, a, it is a society trapped in time, for sure, right? Even down to the fashion and the types of cars. Um, you know, it, it feels like it's a society trapped in the 1950s. Uh, people are fairly afraid to speak out against the government. I mean, everyone wears pins on their lapels that uh, denote, you know, service to the, to the party. Folks gra- uh, congregated once a week, every week to, to, to organize in the, in, the, in the public squares. It's a society that is so different than America that, uh, and the West in general that it's it just really hard to process. Um, a, a lot of stuff is there for show. There were very clearly experiences where you get down into a subway and you realize all the people in the subway are there not because they need to go anywhere, but, but they're there for you to make you believe that there is a functioning transportation system in this, in the city. And you walk down the streets, you have a military escort the entire time you do this, you walk down the street and you know, um, uh, uh, one street, like the street that you're on is going to be very well ma- uh, maintained, but every other street, if you go, if you meander to the side, they're all, you know, not painted and, and crumbling and, and electricity blackouts are quite common. But the ingenuity of the people are quite, uh, is the thing that impressed me the most, you know, electricity is not co- consistent. And so a lot of people get black market solar panels. And so you see solar panels everywhere in the, in the, in the country. Um, uh, quite a, a, a very many of the entrepreneurs that we met were are, um, are women. Um, uh, you know, quite, quite often many women are, uh, uh, are, it's more socially acceptable for the women to start companies and businesses uh, rather than the men uh, because the women might have already had kids and being a stay-at-home wife is, is, is acceptable in society there. And so they have all this free time to go uh, pursue entrepreneurial pursuits. Um, I could go on more, but th- that, it, was a, it was an incredible experience um, for sure. Sounds like it. I mean, what a gift and what an opportunity there. And hopefully maybe we see a way forward and maybe you've already identified this of how we can help some of those citizens that want to have access to an open internet for example if there's a way out or a path you know i think that um in my point of view a military solution is 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 not acceptable because a military solution means the devastation of soul um a diplomatic solution is uh, you know good luck (laughs) uh from from my point of view, if, uh, an economic solution where there is a way that you can economically integrate the two countries and perhaps inspire a generation of entrepreneurs there to go start companies and think about uh, a private sector and allow the country to be on a path where they look more like Vietnam in the future rather than um, rather than what they look like today. Uh, I think that actually pulls the most people out of poverty and famine. But uh, I certainly am not an expert and I'm, I'm always learning, trying to learn more 
Um, I spent a good chunk of grad school trying to think about this specific question, but uh, uh, it's a difficult problem. Even the Singapore program that you took part in, that is a step in the right direction. And that it sounded like had an incentive for all parties involved, all stakeholders involved. Yeah, 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 definitely. Um, it, it, it was, uh, I don't know that I can ever go back, <laughs> given the things I've said uh, out loud about the regime uh, or written about, but you know, uh, I, I have hope that one day I can return uh, to, a, uh, to a more peaceful and unified Korea. It sounds similar to what happened with Cuba being, when you said it's kind of paused in time in the 50s and you go to Cuba and since there was that, the, the embargo for a long time and, and just uh, how they had the, the cars from the 1950s and the internet's poor and it sounds like a similar episode, but maybe less. Uh, yeah, I mean, um, I, had a, I was fortunate enough to visit Cuba uh, maybe a year ago and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of history and I think that there, there are, uh, there are a lot of opportunities in these countries as well. Um, uh, I think that there a lot of the history prevents uh, them from moving forward. Um, but yeah, to your point, like people were still using scratch cards for, for mobile internet and we had to consistently go buy these scratch cards from the hotel lobbies with cash to be able to access anything from the outside world. And uh, that was a quite a unique experience as well. Amazing that we can use these as almost experiments to study human behavior and, and geopolitical efforts. I mean, even think, it reminds me of Easter Island. I'm not sure how familiar you are with what happened there, but I went on a rabbit hole one time of just analyzing what happened. I was watching this documentary called 180 Degrees South, okay. which is the founder of uh, the two best friends go to Patagonia. They love hiking and they're in the Patagonia and they're just best friends hanging out. They come back to the US and one of them becomes the founder of the Patagonia clothing company. The other wow. one becomes the founder of North Face. Wow. And during that documentary, they share how um, they went off this side you know, trip to Easter Island because the ship collapsed there. And so I went on this rabbit hole down this path of studying Easter Island and, and ended up midway through this documentary. I went and watched a whole nother documentary about Easter Island, came back and finished the 180 degrees South documentary. It was okay. anyway, the point is their tribes show dominance toward okay. each other by building stones. And you probably know the famous Easter Island stones yeah. and they, they built them up to the point where the larger they were, the more dominant your tribe was. Okay. Well, to move these large stones around, they, need, they got so big, they needed to start using wooden logs. So they had to chop down trees, turn them into logs, and that would help roll the stones and then lift them up eventually so they could stand tall. Well, what happened was the other tribes caught onto this. And so it was a competition of who could build the, the tallest stones. And they ended up deforesting the land. Wow. And what happens when you deforest the land? The animals die. What happens when the animals die? The food supply decreases. And what wow. happens when the food supply decreases? The humans started eating each other. So cannibalism is what occurred and ended up killing everyone on the entire island except like 100 people of one tribe. Wow. And, and now anthropologists use this as you know, a historic lesson studying human behavior from here on That's out. Fascinating. I had, 
Uh, I hadn't really dived into the history of it, but that's something that, you know, now I'm, in, now I'm intrigued. Now I've got to look at this. <laughs> well, you could probably talk about that for hours, but, uh, you know, thinking about your journey. So you, you're in North Korea, you go to Square, um, you get your MBA at UPenn, and, and now what transition from you working at Square and, and Yungle to where you're at now with Floodgate? Yeah, so I was, uh, while I was in school, um, that, that, uh, that YC company I had mentioned a, a, a while back, um, uh, you know, uh, one of my best friends from, from childhood actually started it. It's one of the first nonprofits YC funded called Bayes Impact. Uh, we were building uh, pretty interesting uh, data so- infrastructure um, uh, for government agencies and nonprofits. Uh, uh, I think for me, the dream was always to uh, do this in other countries and still very much active in France. Um, but I think we, we ended up uh, sticking to the U.S. and France as, as the core places to operate. In any case, one of our board members uh, was a partner at Kleiner Perkins. Uh, his name is Anjane Midha, um, great founder now of this company called Ubiquity6. But Anjane was on the board and um, offered us great advice. He was very wise all the time. And uh, later I learned that he founded their seed stage practice and uh, was doing all sorts of great stuff. And then I learned he was 22 years old. I was like, honestly, how are you 22 and definitely under 30, definitely under, you know, all these, uh, doing all this amazing stuff for a storied venture fund in the, in Silicon Valley. How did you do this? And, and he shared with me that, well, I, I was, a, I was a partner at this thing called Dormant Fund. Uh, and that's how I discovered Dormant Fund for the first time. And, uh, uh, you know, it's a, it's a student run venture fund backed by first round capital. First round gives uh, a decent chunk of, 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 of capital for the students to invest themselves into companies that are founded by other students um, across the country. And uh, uh, I told Anshane, I was like, if I ever go back to business school, you got to introduce me to these people. Um, and that's exactly what happened. I, 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 got, to, I, left, I got to Wharton and uh, uh, the Lauder Institute, which starts the semester before Wharton. Um, and uh, and I, I showed up and I said, introduce me to the people uh, and I found very much a kindred, kindred spirits in all the people that I met at Dormant Fund, all the people who are starting companies or uh, thinking about early stage uh, startups all the time. Uh, and uh, very fortunately, I became a partner there uh, uh, through their interview process. And the rest is history. I mean, Dormant Fund was the foundational thing that allowed me to do all the other venture stuff. Um, I made quite a bit of investments there, um, all precede small check stuff. But uh, uh, fortunately, as some of them have gone on to do really interesting stuff uh, and, and gotten follow-on financings from firms like Sequoia and Founders Fund and, and, uh, uh, and Felicis and Floodgate. Uh, and uh, uh, for me... Yeah, uh, that, by the way, they, they also, Dormroom Fund, invested in some big name startups like Scholly, which was a great idea that help, uh, helps you identify scholarships for college right. and, and automates a lot of that process. And then Love Pop, which was uh, a Shark Tank startup with the cards with Kevin O'Leary in Boston. I mean, there's some cool big names that came out of there. So congratulations, that's that yeah, must have been I mean, rewarding. Over the last decade, I think that we've done something like 250 companies. And uh, um, I think the value of those companies are in the billions of dollars. Uh, and it just goes to show like smart young people can make just as good investments as uh, some of the experience, super experienced investors in Silicon Valley, not to say they were smarter or better, but we have a different perspective. We're just, uh, you know, I engaged and worked with a lot of different uh, young undergraduate students who have a point of view on Gen Z that uh, 
that none of my partners at Floodgate do. Um, uh, and I think sometimes that- ignorance is bliss as well. They, they yeah, might not have had the experience that an expert has, which ultimately could make them better suited. Exactly, exactly. Um, so that led you to Floodgate from but- there? Yeah, I mean, I, I ended up working with a bunch of firms. Uh, I spent some time at Bessemer and wanted to see what it was like to, uh, you know, really have a, uh, a sense for, for a firm that's a, a little larger and uh, what the processes were like to, to run an investment thesis there, working with a, a wonderful partner there, Talia Goldberg, who happened to be a Dorman Fund alum, um, and uh, also got a chance to see what it was like to start a new fund. Um, uh, I ended up working with a new fund called Village Global, that is a seed stage fund backed by Mark Zuckerberg, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, uh, pretty rock star folks. And I joined, I think, a month after uh, they, the, 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 the press ran that they had launched um, uh, and really got a sense of what it was like to, to think about year one of a fund. Um, and that now I'm an investor at Floodgate. Um, I, I got a chance to meet some really amazing people in the ecosystem, and now I get to do this job all the time. <laughs> And what's the premise behind Floodgate? How would you say it's different from other funds that you've been a part of? Yeah, so, so Floodgate, um, the, the quick history is that we've been around for about 14 years. Our founding partners, Mike Maples and Mira Co., uh, they were one of the first people to offer institutional seed checks. I mean, if you can imagine it, like back 14 years ago, if you were a founder, it was not that easy for you to get a check less than $5 million dollars. Series A firms were around all the time, but if you wanted to just test a hypothesis for, um, you know, for cheap, you couldn't really do that. And so Mike and Ann thought, found something really interesting. A- AWS was uh, taking off. Uh, you know, I think it was uh, built in 2006, and after 2006, it started to be much, much easier uh, and cheaper to test a software hypothesis. You don't need $100,000 to buy a server and, and, uh, and, you know, commit to a bunch of work to, to test out whether your product is going to uh, to, to work f- with your with your target market or not, you could just use AWS and it would be, you know, you can deploy something in a day and it would be uh, orders of magnitude cheaper. And so they saw this was happening. They also saw that lean startup methodology was taking off amongst entrepreneurs. And they started offering these checks that were more like $500,000 or a million dollars. And that worked, uh, you know, it rode, they rode the seed wave there. Uh, Mike put the earliest checks into companies like Twitter, Twitch, and Okta, and put the first check into Lyft. She's still on the board there. Um, and the DNA of the firm has still very much stayed in this zero to one, helping founders think through product market fit phase. And uh, I'm very fortunate to learn from these amazing OG seed investors who are, uh, uh, they've become mentors, they've become family, um, and they teach me things that uh, I never would have learned anywhere else. <laughs> That's awesome. And you have a unique experience where you got to sit with co-founders and kind of build a startup as well, but also from an investor standpoint. And it must be helpful to interact with founders in a way before you get to the investor stage so you can kind of see both sides of the, of the table. Yeah, right. And I think that being an operator and having been a part of an early team uh, uh, at a startup I mean, I mean, it, it also runs the gamut, right? Like Bayes was all was a small, less than ten people at one time. I was, I mean, you know, first first hire. Uh, that, that 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 was a very different experience than Vungle, which was hyper growth and uh, you know smashing through targets every other week, and Square, which was became an IPO uh, IPO uh, mature company. Uh, and seeing every phase of that has been formative in my own thinking about how to help founders. Um, 
And it's made me, a, uh, you know, build rapport with founders in a way where I can share, this is what we did at this company. This is how we should think about your product uh, in this way compared to some of my other experiences. What's, what's the biggest mistake now that you've seen so many deals come, you know, across your desk? Yeah. What's the biggest mistake you think founders make? Uh, oh, uh, so I guess there's two. Uh, there's fundraising and building a company are very different activities. Uh, and I think that as a CEO, you have to do both well. In fundraising, I think that many people do not, there's a lot of people who are poor communicators, to be perfectly honest. I think fundraising is something you got to practice at. You got to work with a coach on it, I think. You got to get peer reviews on whether or not your pitch is decent. Uh, and, and you need to be able to clearly articulate passion, life's work, and that there is a path to massive scale for your business in a way where you also show very clearly and educate the investor, what is the problem? How deep does the problem go? How does my solution solve that problem? Why people are desperate to buy it yesterday, right? I think a lot of people don't, uh, uh, don't know how to pitch well. Uh, and I think that they would benefit from having spent time with people um, uh, really kind of focusing on this as an activity to, to, to nail as, a, as an OKR to nail, right? Um, with the building on the company side, a lot of pe folks, I think if you were to speak to my partners, um, a lot of founders end up doing uh, something called fake growth, where uh, they, might be, they might be spending a lot of cash to acquire users and they might be getting some good numbers but it's actually under the underlying fundamentals of why people buy the product, the value prop of the product, of whether the product sells itself. That stuff hasn't been figured out yet. And so they rush, a lot of founders rush into acquiring growth when it's not actually helpful. And so this is what happens when you have companies who raise, you know, sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars and still fail because ultimately the product needs to be looked at more than the sales machine or the go-to-market machine, um, you know, in like some way. vanity metrics. I mean, right. and sometimes that does work though. Like for example, uh, Sarah Blakely with Spanx, she paid her friends to buy her product at Neiman Marcus to make it look like she was getting sales. And ultimately Neiman Marcus trusted in her a little bit more. And then ultimately it led to her getting those real sales and, and Reddit, Reddit's another perfect example. They faked their first hundred users to show, to get a yeah. PG investment actually from Paul Graham. And they, there's a difference though between a couple hundred or, you know, a couple hundred people that are, that are beta testing your product. Like th that's the art of startups, right? There's a very, what I learned from business school is that there's very much a science in, in, in building large companies and there's tried and true tactics there. Startup building in the zero to one is all art. And, you know, uh, getting that first hundred users that are passionate about your product. Yeah, there are creative ways to do that. What I'm talking about is going from, from one to a billion and you cannot, uh, you can't brute force that, you know, you can't. That's like the Theranos story versus the Reddit or Sarah Blakely story. I can see that. I like how you put it. It's more of an art rather than a science. Whereas once you're later stage, it's more of a science because yeah, to get off the ground. Okay. That makes sense. But if you're still paying for the, the sales to happen, then there's probably an issue going on or the product is wrong and something needs to change. Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think that that's why I think seed investors, uh, I'm so excited to be at a firm like Floodgate and to have been mentored by folks at first round like Josh Koppelman and Finn Barnes because uh, there are different universes. 
right? The, the zero to one company building phase and the post product market phase are just worlds apart. <laughs> you know, there's this guy, Tom, who's the founder of the 10, 10, 10 event. Okay. It's out of Denver. Uh, he worked with Steve Jobs' mentee, actually. And it's a, his whole philosophy is that investors vet about a thousand deals per year, maybe, and they'll maybe invest in less than 10%. And yet an entrepreneur, they vet maybe three ideas and they decide to go all in and invest their time, their energy, their money, the stress before they vetted enough ideas. And so his philosophy with 101010 is 10 entrepreneurs, 10 ideas in 10 days. And mm. let's see if you're the right entrepreneur for the right idea. He says it's basically irrespective of the idea or the entrepreneur. It's are you the best entrepreneur for that idea? Meaning do you match up well to take it to the next level? And they've done six cohorts so far. Cool. And they have about a 20 to 30% um, success rate, which is, you know, it's good actually. If, if you only have 10 and three of them end up matching and take the company to five years or 10 years and later, then uh, their algorithm is, is basically working. You have to meet certain criteria to even be one of the 10, like having X amount of successful exits. But it, it's a pretty cool idea and similar to, I think, what an investor does is they vet more before they decide to invest all their time, energy, and effort into, you know, a, a business. Whereas an entrepreneur, how could an entrepreneur do a better job? Do you have any thoughts on that? How, uh, how can an entrepreneur do a better job at what exactly? Vetting the ideas before they decide to go wow. all in. So, so actually I have a great, uh, response to that, I guess. The, my, my partner, Mike Maples, he, uh, is very, strong at figuring out the ideation phase of, of, uh, of a company's journey. He has a framework called backcasting that I would really encourage anyone uh, to, to read. Uh, he has an article out about this and he's been is, uh, noodling on uh, what, what the specific kind of framework is and I'm spending time with him. But the, the, the major concept here is uh, it's, it, there should be a framework for, be able to, for being able to determine whether your idea is good or not, right? And the way that we think about uh, backcasting so it's just forecasting, but working backwards from the future that you think is going to happen is to think about inflection points first. Uh, we think that the best companies in the world that create new categories of businesses uh, that the world hadn't seen before, which is ultimately the ones that are most successful. Blue ocean strategy. Yeah. The, the new categories there uh, are, are, come from either a technology change where perhaps an experience has reduced, uh, perhaps an enabling technology has reduced the uh, cost of something, a costume experience by orders of magnitude, or a new experience is, is net new that, that is possible now, or a regulatory change, or a consumer behavior change, or something we call a belief inflection, where something that was considered a heresy before is no longer considered heresy, or vice versa. Uh, if you can nail one of these inflections and determine what is uh, happening in the world and apply it to a certain industry, what ends up happening is you get insights out of that. And an insight is just a fundamental truth that perhaps other people haven't really determined is valuable yet. Or, you know, we also call it a, an earned secret, right? Uh, this, this idea that, uh, uh, that, uh, that you can build an entire business around an earned secret is something that is, uh, is, uh, is exciting. So I'll, I'll make that real for you and how we think about it. So our partner, Anne had a 
interesting thesis around uh, a couple change events that were happening. The military had open sourced GPS, so regulatory change, right? Any, any commercial entity can now use a GPS. Um, the iPhone started, uh, I think it was starting with the iPhone 3, the 3G services that were connected to those iPhones uh, were getting good enough to the point where it was actually quite useful to have GPS in the phone. So GPS was put in our smartphone and now you can actually get find, find people um, where, point, where two people, two points in time are in real time uh, to pretty, pretty, pretty solid precision. So that is a, uh, I would say that that's a technology change. And there's an adoption change in the sense that everyone now has a smartphone. Uh, you put that all together and you think, all right, well, how, what, what industries are going to be disrupted if you know where two points in time are in real time and you can consistently track it. And so I think at the time she was thinking through logistics and, and, and how, uh, uh, you know, uh, and, and transportation, but she basically said any founder who comes in and puts this all together for me and, and takes advantage of these, these, uh, these change events, uh, will be, a company that we're really interested in. And I don't want to put words in her mouth. She probably has a, a different specific take on this because she lived it. But uh, the, the founders at Lyft came in through the door and said, hey, we're using, uh, we're using all these, uh, uh, we're, we're building a smartphone app where people can order a ride. And, uh, and she, put, she put the first money into the company, right? Uh, and the belief inflection there is that people will get into strangers' cars and go, uh, go somewhere and not be weird about it, right? At the time, it was definitely, you know, unknown whether that would be true, but it is definitely something we take for granted today. And so you put that all together and you can build a great company. Um, uh, I, I think that we look for founders who really traverse that backcasting uh, inflection point insight journey. And that actually brings up a good point. One of the things you said was in the very beginning, what, where is the world at right now? What's happening in the world right now? And it, it validates or echoes what Bill Gross said in his TED talk when he studied over like 10,000 startups, big and small, Airbnb, Uber, failure, successful, and found there was five variables that had greater statistical significance than any other variables. And mm. in order of impact, number one was timing. Yep. Number two was execution of the team. Number three was idea. Number four was business model. Number five was funding. And he found that, so those first three were the most important business model should always change based on how the market is adapting. You should adapt to the market. And then funding is basically, you know, you don't need that to bootstrap something to, to get it off the ground, but it was interesting, but I think that's a good point. And, you know, this segues into the part I know we want to bring up today, which is your, your new, uh, thing that you want to promote that you were kind of an entrepreneur on, which is the anchor list, which is when you said, oh, this person's really good at backcasting, right? It's like you're finding like a football team. If you're going to assemble a football team, you've got the best wide receiver, the best quarterback, the, you know, the best running back. Why can't we do that for startups? And it sounds like you're kind of on the brink of something with Anchor List. Can you tell us more about that? How yeah, you yeah. I'm really excited about it. Uh, it. It was noodling in my mind. It's been noodling in my mind for the better part of a year. And I finally you know, brought it to uh, my partners at Floodgate and said, I really want to go build this. And they were very uh, gracious in, in saying, you should just build this at Floodgate. We'll give you all the resources you need to make it successful. And so uh, the Anchor List is a crowdsourced list. Uh, annual annual list of the best startup operators in tech, uh, agnostic of location, agnostic of um, uh, of size of company, 
um, uh, it just can't be a publicly traded company. It has to be a private, um, private company startup. And the idea here is we have six categories that we care about. Uh, we're looking for uh, the best product managers, uh, the best design leaders, the best um, uh, sales, sales and business development, operations and finance, um, uh, marketing and growth talent leaders. They, they, these are the categories that we broadly have. And, uh, you know, we, we want to figure out who are the people that uh, the, the rest of the operator community looks up to the most. And so we actually want to, actually, uh, to, to do quite a bit uh, with this community once we recognize them. We, we've got a rock star list of judges to help us evaluate um, who these people are. Um, who, who these, uh, who are actually, you know, the, the best operators, folks like Jonathan Mildenhall, who used to be the former, um, he used to be the CMO of Airbnb. Um, uh, we have uh, uh, f- folks like um, uh, Andrew Chen, who used to run growth at uh, Uber for writer growth. Um, Sarah Tavel, who's a partner at Benchmark, who is, uh, was a product manager at, um, at, at Pinterest really great folks that, that, that help us to make this determination, right? Uh, and we want to create a community of these operators. Uh, so uh, I think that there's quite a bit of magic that happens when, say, the five, three to five best product managers we've uh, ever uh, encountered uh, through, the, through the search meets the three to five best designers that we've ever found, right? And maybe they create companies out of that, or maybe they collaborate in a way and they get along famously and uh, introduce each other to opportunities like other companies to work with. Um, some of them might start companies. Some of them might just be angel investors that we want to work with and collaborate with there. It, uh, the, the sky's the limit, right? But we really want to shine a light on these people because anyone who works in startups knows it's not just about the founder, right? We love founders. They are so important in that zero to one ideation phase. Companies wouldn't exist without founders, but it takes operators to scale it from one to, 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 to a billion and, and beyond. It takes a village to go build great companies. And we want yeah. to make those people get highlighted too. I've wanted this for a long time because, you know, when you play basketball or football, there's a very clear goal. You know exactly what to do for basketball. You need to get the ball in the net. And the way you get better at getting the ball in the net is learning how to pra- uh, practice dribbling, shooting, you know, right. passing, um, you know, jumping, running. But with business, it's, it's still kind of ambi- am- ambiguous. It's got an art and a science to it. And it seems like we're starting to get more and more data to identify what is the best positions for the team. And it sounds like you got six categories. So there's like six best operators, six best positions. And then how do we fulfill those positions? So what's the criteria that makes a good shooting guard or point guard, for example, right. and, or product manager in your case? And then... We, I'm sure you probably have now a curriculum because more and more startup accelerators and whatnot are trying to create a curriculum from how do you create, if you have the right people on the bus and you got the bus moving in the right direction, okay, where does the bus go? What is the path to get it from, you know, idea phase to a successful, let's say IPO, if that's, if that's the goal or to yeah. get X amount of sales. Yeah, I, I don't have a good answer for you. To be honest, uh, one of the reasons why we wanted to put this together, this great community together, is the people who know the answers to that for their particular domain area uh, is, going to be, is going to be the people on this list. Uh, where it all fits together uh, is perhaps for your question. Uh, you know, it, that, that takes great leaders who are you know, great founders and entrepreneurs who can, can, can weave the teams together to create a cohesive vision 
Uh, I don't think it's just entrepreneurs who can do that. But, you know, for, for us, at least at Floodgate, we spend a lot of time thinking about this product market fit journey, right? Uh, and that you need so many different elements to figure out that, uh, to, to figure that out. You, you, ultimately, I'm going to borrow something from Andy Radcliffe, who is a friend of the firm. And I, I think his uh, thoughts on product market fit are, are very correct here. You want to just buy something that, or you want to create something that people are desperate to buy. That, you know, if you, if, if, if you came along and you built something and you, you handed it to them, they're going to go wide eyed and say, where have you been all my life? They'll pay you extra to skip the wait list and go front of the line to try your product because they've been wanting it their entire, their entire, um, their entire lives. And, and so how do you navigate that? You know, there, there are elements, a lot of that is the ideation phase, right? That's where the true kind of strength of the founder comes in and figuring out with that backcast casting framework I mentioned, how do you actually figure out whether your idea is worth any salt? And then you engage with these, these, uh, these operators to really scale it once you figure that out, right? Yeah, because it's a different skill set to be a founder. And like, I love starting it. I don't like running it. I'm not an operator. It's a, it's a different personality trait. It's, you know, there's one person that's a visionary and then there's other people that like managing people and doing day-to-day tasks and right. taking that company from startup to a, a you know, huge company. So Sean, this reminds me of Rocket Internet where they find an idea that was successful in the US they find a team to operate it and just repurpose it for another country like the Amazon of Nigeria, Jumia, or, you know, other companies uh, like the Uber of the Middle East, Kareem, where they find an idea, it's already successful and they just, they don't necessarily want to run it, but now they could find a team to run it. And it sounds like with AnchorList, you could find good operators. So if you do have an idea, maybe you can hire someone or get someone to initiate the operations of it. Is that... Yeah, I mean, sure. I mean, I think we're, we have a specific point of view on the types of people we want to recognize. And on the one hand, yes, these are people who have helped scale to, to massive scale for a lot of great companies, but we really also care about people who can do the zero to one. So the point of view that we have is we're trying to find people that if you were to start a new company tomorrow, say it's a rocket internet company or any company, really, these are people that you can trust to entirely own a category of or a function of the company, whether that's design or product or operations or some of the other categories I mentioned, right? Uh, they can just hit the round, the ground running first 90 days. You already know they're going to, they're going to kill it. Uh, and they're very thoughtful about how to scale in the zero to one phase, as well as the one to end phase. Uh, in the long run, we would love to introduce some of these anchor list uh, awardees to uh, uh, interesting companies and opportunities that they wouldn't want to work for. Some of them might be our portfolio companies, some of them might want to start new companies themselves and introduce them to co-founders is, uh, is, or perhaps where they find a co-founder and someone on the anchor list. Uh, that's all potential to, uh, that, uh, that, that we want to explore. Yeah, like AngelList. I mean, we recruit a lot from AngelList. And then if you're looking for a co-founder, co-founders lab, it sounds like you're becoming like the AngelList, but for those that operate startups. And I see a lot of value sure. in that, even for yeah. my own company, if, if you open it up to other startups that want to hire from it. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, we're year one, right? Uh, we're we're going to try to build the best community that we can, that we're going to try to be authentic to it. We're not going to try to force anything. Uh, and, uh, if we, if we do this podcast a couple years from now, I'll, I can give you a, a rundown of how it all worked out. Yeah. We'll do our next episode as a catch up yeah. call. And, um, you know, thinking about 
your journey and, and moving forward, maybe from the, oh, by the way, for those listening, go to anchorlist.com to find out more about Sean's journey with this entrepreneurial program. I'm excited to, to see the progress and witness the success. But um, thinking about your journey, what would you say is the single most important attribute you have that has ultimately led to your success? For me, uh, I think the thing that I have really counted on the most is network connectivity, which is not necessarily the most defensible thing. A lot of people who can hustle and network their way into really great opportunities. And uh, that's something I'm cognizant of, of, of often. But for me, it's really building these authentic relationships with people who care about the same problems I care about, who are interested in building companies or who are uh, just thinking about the next steps in their careers. And you know, for me, I really want to uh, help where I can without ever expecting anything back, right? Uh, and, and for me to do that and consistently hold that, that mentality throughout every single person I meet, you can learn something from every single person, whether they're a very fancy uh, CEO, uh, you know, whether they're wealthy or whether they're the opposite, whether, you know, they perhaps didn't go to college or, you know, work um, uh, for, for minimum wage, you learn something from, from everybody. And to the extent that you can be gracious and offer help to anyone who needs it and then foster these relationships in an authentic way where you can help each other and in, in, in just a larger kind of um, larger tribe, let's say like that's been really helpful for me and something that I actually really look forward to forward to for Forbes 30 under 30, because that's, that's that same mentality exists in a lot of the people I've met. Relationships are so important and fostering and facilitating a network of community globally it makes me think of the word rolodex i mean back in the day you say oh let me tap into my rolodex and rolodexes are antiquated now i'm sure some people listening might not even know what it is but it's essentially this little wheel you used to have all these cards with your contacts on it in, in paper format so it's very interesting but thinking about relationships one of the most important aspects of relationships is gratitude giving back like you mentioned Mm-hmm. And I love unique and cool ways to give back. What's one of the coolest or unique ways that maybe you or someone you know has shown gratitude for someone? It's a great question. I think that I have learned a lot from watching Jack Dorsey run his companies, Square and Twitter. And the when I think of a gracious leader, I think of Jack. Um, and I think that's really influenced my own life. So I'll give you an example. Uh, uh, back when I was working at Square, one year we recognized, we wanted to recognize stories of really great sellers. That's what we call the merchants who are on the platform using our product to process card payments. And one of the merchants he recognized was uh, a man who is a Syrian refugee who left uh, and fled war and came to, I think it was Knoxville, Tennessee, and started a really great uh, falafel stand. And he started that business with a Square reader and he grew that business into a real restaurant. And uh, 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 ultimately, Square chose him as one of the sellers to tell a story about. There was a whole great story about um, what it means to be American and what it means to, uh, to give back and, and, uh, uh, and, uh, and how they, they've uh, built like the American, American dream using Square. Right. Exactly. How, how, the, how they, you know, explaining the American dream and how they were able to build that or start that at least with with a square reader, which was a really impactful uh, thing for me as someone who really cares about, you know, uh, global issues. Uh, in, any way, in any case, uh, for our Christmas party, Jack invited him to our Christmas party, annual, annual Christmas party. And 
presented him to everybody. And I got a, I had a really great chance to meet him and it was wonderful. And I basically said, you know, I'm an immigrant too. Thank you for sharing your story. Um, uh, you know, you're going to make it just like, just like everyone else. And it, it was a, it was a wonderful way to kind of show everyone at Square what we're really building for and who we're building for. And uh, for, for that particular seller, Jack also gifted him um, uh, a substantial amount of Square equity as well and said, this is wow. your present. I think it was, I think it was like a six figure gift, um, I think. But, you know, gifted him the equity, made him feel like a rock star, uh, you know, flew him out from, from, from Knoxville to introduce him to all these people at Square who are all building, um, you know, uh, products for him, right? And people like him. That to me is a uh, is a gesture of true graciousness. I think um, unbelievable. That is a beautiful yeah. story. I, 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 yeah. Do you remember his the name of his company? A um, company that would be cool to just like look him up, see where he's at now. I think it's Yassine's Falafel House, uh, and I think sense. that if you go to there's a great video, uh, Yassine Falafel, that Square produced. The great, the awesome video team at Square um, uh, produced it, and uh, the creative team as well. And I think that, that it, it's a beautiful video. I would recommend checking it out. Very cool. We'll check that out and put it in the show notes. And um, thinking of these scrappy hustle ways to give back, what about fostering relationships? Do you have a good example of how you maintain these authentic relationships or build them. And then also from the scrappy hustle side, is there anything you did that was scrappy hustle, like in the very beginning yeah. stages of your career that maybe you couldn't have revealed in the beginning, but you can, you're willing to share now. Sure. I mean, uh, uh, how do you stay in touch with great people? For me? Uh, I mean, I have little hacks. Like I make sure that I have a reminder on my calendar, uh, spaced out once a month to people that I try to keep in touch with once a month and uh, uh, I'm making a point to set up time to do coffee or a virtual coffee these days or a phone call just to make sure that I'm thinking of, they know that I'm thinking about them and that they, uh, that they matter to me. That applies to both friends and people you work with uh, in a professional setting. Uh, but I also host a uh, pre COVID. I used to host uh, wine nights at my house every Wednesday, every other Wednesday, I would bring together a group of people, usually small group, like six people or eight people. And we, theme, we uh, made it thematic. So one time we did a session on uh, what are we thinking, like hot takes on what 2020 will bring us. Uh, I don't think anyone who could have predicted what 2020 would bring us, but we had a session on that, right? Uh, we had a Asian American entrepreneur night at my house once. We had a, um, uh, a, a future of work uh, uh, entrepreneurship night at my house. And so I get in the habit of trying to host these things uh, frequently and try to foster small group uh, relationships. And I think that's been very helpful for me. Uh, and these days it's harder because it's because of COVID, but I think it's still quite important to do that um, through house party or Zoom or anything like that. Um, to answer your other question about uh, how I'm thinking about uh, or, or what have I done in the past that was a, like a hustle story that helped me foster some of these relationships, uh, you know, back when I was at Bayes Impact, we, uh, one of the, one of the great projects I got to work on was helping, uh, the founders, uh, basically we ran and organized a, uh, a hackathon. And so the, the context here, again, it's a nonprofit that is, uh, bringing data science scientists together and building software for government agencies and nonprofits. 
we needed to get in touch with every, every important data scientists in Silicon Valley, not, the, not around the world, right? Uh, and so we figured we would run a hackathon where the point was to produce a project through an interesting set of uh, interesting data sets uh, that would be helpful to a particular nonprofit or government agency. So uh, this is awesome. This is the way that I was able to uh, meet a lot of the people that I collaborate with today. We brought on some amazing judges, uh, Joe Lonsdale, who founded Palantir and part of the PayPal mafia and uh, uh, now is a venture capitalist at ABC. Um, the CTO at Twitter of, uh, at Twitter of the time, um, uh, we had some awesome prizes. So we said, anyone who wins, you're going to get, uh, lunch with Alexis Ohanian who founded Reddit or Jerry Yang who founded, uh, Yahoo, like amazing people, like people care a lot more about these unique experiences. I think, um, especially this set of people more so than, you know, cash or credit cards, uh, uh, gift cards or whatever. And so we, we curated this amazing experience and we looped in the White House, we looped in the Department of Labor, NASA, uh, 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 some amazing nonprofits that offered, uh, volunteered really interesting data sets to, to, to build stuff on top of. Uh, and, uh, and beyond that, uh, uh, we, we just created this really amazing experience to, uh, uh, to, to make it fun for everybody to come hack on a weekend project. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, um, we did all of that and didn't pay a dime for anything. You know, all the, do all the food was donated, the space, we, were, we did this at OpenDNS. We found some great friends who were willing to, to host this for us um, free of charge. All of these judges and all of these uh, um, uh, award uh, folks did, uh, offered up their time uh, free of charge uh, because they believed in the mission and it was a nonprofit and they believed in meeting these, uh, this group of data scientists. We ended up having something like 300 data scientists come and hack on this project for over for a weekend, many of whom are now doing really interesting things. Uh, the winner of that uh, hackathon uh, was Peter Reinhardt, who is uh, now the CEO of Segment. And Segment is often doing interesting things. I think it's like uh, uh, one of the more successful companies uh, that have been built in the last 10 years. Uh, but really fostering a, an opportunity to meet people before they've blown up in their career or built something incredible and getting them uh, in a way where you can build authentic relationships and bonds. I mean, it was a short three-day weekend, uh, uh, two, day, uh, two days of hacking, but I still remember that. And most people that I talk to still remember that experience as being a quite a positive one. And so that's yeah, such, a, such a unique experience. And you made it so special, exclusive, and unique that people wanted to be a part of it, irrespective yeah, it was, of the monetary value. Yeah, it was also the heyday of hackathons. I mean, we ended up, I think Mashable at the time ran an article on us. Uh, but nowadays, I don't know, I don't really see a lot of press on hackathons these days. And so maybe things have changed. There's different other forums that might be more conducive. But at the time, it was a, a great way to bring a yeah, it's an community together. Effective approach. And if there's investors listening, thinking of that strategic, unique way of, of get, bringing people together, what's a strategic or unique way you pull information out of entrepreneurs? So obviously there's kind of this, you know, you're on two ends of the table. One is the entrepreneur, one is the investor, and you're trying to win the other. It's like dating, right? You're trying to like not look too eager. And I mean, what's one of the ways that you're able to be strategic on the investor side of the table? Uh, you know, for, for us, I think it, it's just asking the right questions, right? Really digging into, you know, why is this your life's work? Where, how did you get here? 
Um, what was the intellectual uh, journey, the idea maze that you took to uh, determine what it is, what product uh, it is that you actually ended up needing to build? Uh, what are your customers saying about you? Um, you know, there's a, there's a laundry list of great questions to ask founders in, in determining what kind of company they're trying to build. Uh, but it's all about asking those right questions, it's some, which is something that, um, you know, I, in a past life, I was a consultant and uh, a lot of, a lot of the, that DNA comes from the consulting world too. What, what's like a red flag that you watch out for? You're like, absolutely no. As soon as this pops up, we know it's not the right fit. When founders, uh, when co-founders really talk down to each other in a, in a way that is uh, uh, inappropriate, I think that you can spot a lot of those co-founder disagreements. So like when someone, you just look for who is talking more, right? And when someone tries to speak up, the other co-founder, the person who's speaking less, how are those co-founders interact, uh, like managing that, right? When someone talks over another person and doesn't let a co-founder get a word in or talks down to that co-founder and says, no, let me talk about this. Um, you know, investors pick up on that. And so much of a company is dependent on the senior leadership and the founders of the company, um, especially in the early days. And if you have that in the early days, that's something that I think is not, uh, it's not, it's not, it, it, it's a recipe for disaster. Yeah, if it's already starting off like that in, in the fun days and it's, it can only be exacerbated or magnified as you go, you know, if you put money in, it just magnifies what you already have. If you have great things going on, the money's going to magnify those great things. If you have horrible or poor things going on, it's just going to magnify, you know, more negativity. And that's sure. great. So if, if someone's too domineering or condescending, that's, that's a red flag, sounds like. You know, on the flip side of your successful tips and strategies, what's maybe the biggest lesson you've learned on your journey that maybe you wish you had learned from sooner? Hmm. It's a good question. I think being patient and humble is very important. And I think that I've, I was earlier in my career, I was very anxious to just you know, be somebody and get, get to the finish line for uh, building that company or helping scale this project or becoming a, you know, storied investor and great things take time. Uh, I think you can go fast and execute quickly. Uh, and I think that's wonderful, but if you really want to uh, be a master at something and, uh, uh, and really stick to, uh, and really become well-known in a field and build a reputation for it, uh, I think you need to work at it every day. You have to be consistent about it every day. And you have to be patient uh, in the sense that uh, you are going to learn more uh, if you didn't you know, act on your impulses. So in the investing world, I think that co commonly ha happens. I think that in, uh, uh, you know, when I first started investing for Garmin Fund, you know, I did something like 20 plus deals, right? In the two years that I was in school. Uh, and now at Floodgate, I've learned that it's way more important to be high conviction uh, and really believe that you can be helpful to a company. You can find plenty of great companies that you just realize you're not going to be the most helpful person to help influence the trajectory of that company, in which case the intellectually honest thing to do is probably not to engage with them. Uh, but in any case, figuring out that, you know, spending time to really learn from people who've been doing it longer than you 
uh, as an investor and learning from where, what, what those mistakes they made were is incredibly important. So uh, I've learned to slow down quite a bit through Floodgate and I think I'm a better investor because of it. I, I, I cringe at a lot of the investments that uh, I considered making you know, that I, that I put forward to other people and other angels a year or two years ago. And, and there's very different decisions than I would make now. That's, that's great advice. And sometimes you need to step back, do less in order to do more. Um, yeah. We're going to transition now into the final round of the podcast, which is called the under 30 seconds round. I'm going to fire off some questions, answer with the first thing that comes to mind. Are you ready? Sure. All right, Sean, for this first question, I'm actually going to take a unique approach with you because I think it's what is the book you've gifted more often than any other book and why? But I, I want to ask, what's the book you gift more often to founders more often than any other book and why? And what is the book you've gifted more often to investors uh, and why? I don't know that I've gifted uh, 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 long form content to founders all that often to be honest, I, I gift them a lot of short form content. And so the short form content that I send to most founders is the stuff that my partner, Mike Maples writes. He, uh, I mentioned earlier, you know, he has great content on backcasting and thinking about, uh, you know, um, evaluating whether or not you are, uh, land, you've landed on a breakthrough idea and whether or not you have great insights. His content is rock solid. Um, so I gift his content out a lot. I also gift out, uh, and it's not even a gift. It's, it's not my gift to give. I just refer them to great, to great, uh, to great writing. And um, Andrew Chen from Andreessen Horowitz, who has been, um, uh, uh, who's offered me really great advice in my career, he, he uh, has amazing uh, content out on growth. Um, I was part of his program called Reforge that he co-founded that, you know, puts you through, through a boot camp of all the other um, heads of growth in the world and teaches you what it means to really grow something from zero to one. And uh, uh, his essays on marketplace growth in particular, his collection of essays that he's curated is um, uh, a really, really strong starting place to think about uh, 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 that subject. Uh, the, the book that I gift out the most, regardless of who I send it to, just non-founders and founders alike, is a book called, um, the author's name is Parag Khanna, who is probably one of the foremost experts on globalization in the world. He's a professor at... Uh, uh, university in Singapore these days. Uh, but he has a book, he has a series of books, but I think the book that I think is interesting the most is uh, Connectography, which is speaking to how our world is shaped around uh, connectivity and networks. Uh, a lot of the, what we've been discussing today, but uh, supply chains, networks, uh, soft power, and how we need to do envision the world going forward. Um, a lot of that is, I think, challenged by COVID, but a lot of it is also illuminating. And I think it is uh, one of the most important books we need to read today because so much of what we do today is tied into what other people do in other countries. Yes, good recommendations. What's one of the best investments and one of the worst investments you've ever made and why? So here's the funny story. At Dormant Fund, we're a very consensus-driven, team-driven investing culture. Uh, we vote on investments and it's the consensus that gets the vote through. Uh, and there's a company called Emotive that I mentioned that they offer a two-way conversational text platform. And uh, they, uh, I, when I met these founders, they were awesome. Like I just knew right off the bat in my gut that these are really solid, awesome executors. And I met them when they just had graduated from USC, uh, introduced by another Dormant Fund partner. And when I was at Dormant Fund, um, uh, I brought them to the team and I said, 
I am so in. Like I, I thought it, I figured it'd be unanimous. Like this, this is the this is a product that's going to really work. And I got a unanimous no. <laughs> uh, I brought them to an accelerator that I'm uh, close to, the Village Global, which I mentioned earlier, the new fund that I had spent the summer at, and they had spun up a new accelerator called Catalyst. Brought them to Catalyst, and they said, "No, nah, it probably doesn't make sense." Um, only when I got to Floodgate did I realize uh, you know, they had been speaking to the partners at Floodgate for for a bit of time. And uh, uh, when uh, when when conversations restarted that they were raising around, uh, did I I ran into my partner Ann's office and said, "You need to put money in this company. I'm so bullish on these guys. They're going to make it work." And to put numbers into context, I mean, when I met them, they were doing close to maybe thirty thousand dollars a year in revenue, and they ended the year in something close to like more than $3 million in your year in revenue. That's how you know that there's real product market fit. It, it, it's, they're such a good team, right? And they have really landed on a market that needs their product. Uh, so I think that that's, uh, and they were just recently raised a series A. I think that uh, I am most excited about those guys uh, and what, where, where they're going. The worst investment I ever made is the one that I didn't make, right? I, uh, um, uh, uh, I, I, I had Brex in my sites, which is a corporate card for startups. And nowadays I think they're worth a billion dollars, maybe more. Um, and so they reached out to Dormer fund and asked me like, Hey, can we promote, can we, can you promote our product to your founders? Uh, I think I asked someone at first round and I asked a couple founders, like, would you use this product? And they said, nah, I don't really have any uh, need for this right now. And so I just let it go. Uh, but lo and behold, if I like, you know, they've, they're extremely successful now. If I really dug into it and I, if I had, um, you know, looked into, uh, uh, looked into really whether or not, uh, why founders need it. I mean, in recent memory, it's probably one of the best student founded companies, uh, um, ever. I mean, they were born out of Stanford, out of a Stanford dorm room and, uh, I missed it. Thanks for sharing that. I mean, I mean, why do you, now that you've come to that conclusion, why is it that founders do need their card? What's the conclusion you've made? Oh, I think that um, it, it's, you know, uh, most founders have problems uh, at getting, getting credit, getting like a corporate credit card period. Because uh, you know, banks, lot- you're basically the assumption is banks should vet them differently than someone with poor credit. Is that the idea? I mean, like, I mean, if, uh, if I'm a founder and I haven't raised money yet, or, or if I've raised just a little bit of money, but it's not serious, or I have no revenues to speak of, uh, uh, oftentimes you, you have to go through a lot of hurdles to get that corporate credit card. Um, you're going to be viewed differently or at higher risk. And so you might get different rates. You might, there might be a, a delay in getting that card. Um, I, I can't speak to the specifics because it's uh, I haven't really run through that process specifically with um, uh, with one of my portfolio companies, but you know uh, Brex comes along and says it's frictionless, it's easy. We want to give everyone a corporate card, credit card if you're a startup founder and makes make you feel really special about it, and, and it works. There you go. And I could see why on the flip side, your best investment is one that you were kind of an outlier in, and it ended up working. Like, yeah, I was right. Well, Good I mean, job. No, it, <laughs> Why is it my best investment? I don't know necessarily it'll be my best like returns based investment, but uh, I do know, and, and even then with Emotive, I think that it was, uh, you know, it's, it's more like the firm's investment more than, than, than my investment attribution is always a, a funny thing with venture capital, right? But um, I, I'm, I'm most, I've learned the most from that deal because uh, 
just because everyone else says you're wrong doesn't mean you're wrong. Good answer. What's the most impactful thing you do in your morning routine and the most impactful thing you do in your evening routine? Uh, evenings these days I work out. Um, so, um, getting in, I, I got really into future fit. I don't know if you've uh, used that product, but really awesome platform that, uh, connects you to a personal trainer that FaceTimes in and basically tells you what to do and tells you all the workouts to do. And they track all your stuff through an Apple watch that they give you. So, uh, it's, uh, uh, you know, kicking my ass, but I think it's in a good way. And, uh, it, it, that's been a great addition to my, my evening routine in the morning. Um, I, uh, I'm a caregiver for my dad and he's had Parkinson's for 10 years. Um, he had a stroke a couple years back, uh, due to a messy surgical operation that didn't turn out well. And, uh, um, my brother and I take turns, but, uh, uh, we help my dad get up in the morning every day. And, uh, I think that it humbles you. I think you learn a lot from doing it. Um, it makes you appreciate sleep as well. <laughs> um, but it also makes you, you know, I'm very close with my, my family and I think it's really important to, 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 to be in the habit of, of being there for people when they need you. Sorry to hear that. And that's admirable. Um, I was a caregiver for my father, so I can empathize with, with that. Yeah. Um, it's hard. It, uh, man, they say it's harder for the caregiver than it is the patient. A lot of it the is. times it is. Yeah. Yeah. For, Pretend you won the Peter Thiel fellowship and you're going to get money to start a business instead of go to college. What's the very first thing you do to start your new business? Oh man. Um, I would go and find uh, a co-founder. That's the most important thing. There's a couple people on the top of my head that are really technical that I would think, you know, would be great for me to work with. Um, but I'm, I'd be co-founder dating. And if it takes six months or it takes six years, it doesn't matter. Like, like I want to find that person and hopefully it doesn't take six years. Uh, but I, uh, really want to find that person. And two, that backcasting methodology I mentioned with Mike, um, uh, I would go spend a couple, you know, I would spend time with people who are really, um, uh, uh, living in the future as Mike would say, who are in a, in the areas that I think is in, are interesting. Uh, for me, that's FinTech, that's future of work, that's climate change. Uh, and figure out what it is that uh, uh, that uh, that they're excited about, and learn from them. See where the, see where the future is going to be, and then work backwards from it um, with that co-founder. Hopefully, I think that's what I would spend my time doing. Good one, Sean. And last one: What's something you never knew you needed? Mm. Um. Uh. <laughs> apparently, future fit. <laughs> uh, I used to be in shape when I was a kid and uh, I am not. And I thought I would be like, oh yeah, it'll be fine to, to just get back right into shape. And then realizing that a personal trainer is actually, to your point, like you need trainers, you know, uh, not everyone has coaches, but Olympians all have coaches. Uh, right. And I think that that is true in every aspect of life. Uh, and uh, uh, for something as simple as personal fitness, I definitely needed a, a coach. Boom. There you go. Thank you so much for being here today, Sean. Uh, before you go, what's the next big goal, milestone, or bucket list item you want to achieve? Well, um, I want to make sure that I uh, make uh, that Anchorless gets off the ground and the great community gets built there. Um, I'd love to help my founders uh, succeed and also, you know, uh, meet the next unicorn founder and help them succeed. So that's that's uh, immediately on my mind. If any of you founders out there are interested in chatting, just jamming on various subjects, whatever it is that uh, you found interesting in this, uh, in this podcast, uh, let me know. I'm just uh, Sean at floodgate.com. 
And where do listeners go to connect with you directly outside of your email? Do you prefer LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter? <laughs> I'm on all of them, but uh, I think that uh, LinkedIn and Twitter are where I spend most of my professional time. So at Sean Shu is, uh, is, is my handle on Twitter and on LinkedIn, you can just search my name and you'll find me. And I'll put that in the show notes. It's spelled S-H-A-W-N and last name is X-U. And yep. um, what about your reading, uh, your writings? If we, do you have a Medium account or where can we look at yeah. some of the writings that you've, yeah. know you, you've written in TechCrunch and et cetera? Uh, yeah, I periodically write. Um, probably should be doing more these days. But uh, it just, if you just go to Medium uh, and search my name or medium.com slash at Shanju, uh, I think you'll probably find me. And uh, that's where a lot of my existing stuff is. Great. Please go connect with Sean. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for being here today. This is Sean Shu with Floodgate Venture Capital Firm, who helps entrepreneurs get to the next level. We learned so much today how to learn about product market fit, red flags to look for as an investor or entrepreneur, and his unique story in North Korea. Sean, thank you so much for being here today. It was such a pleasure. Thanks, Phil. Really appreciate it. I hope this episode helped you as much as it helped me. Have an amazing day. Thanks for joining us today. I hope this episode helped you as much as it helped me. Who do you think would benefit from hearing it? You can make an impact on their life by sharing it now. Before you go, I encourage you to tell us your favorite part of the episode in the review section. Now it's time to level up. Level up. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.